Hello and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Cecil Yilmaz. Today our guest is Anat Morville, a doctoral candidate in the Department of History at UCLA. Anat, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Anat's research focuses on the history of the disease trachoma, particularly in the Israel-Palestine region over the course of the 20th century and its various intersections with medicine and, and social questions. Today we're going to be talking, or, or we're, today we're going to be framing our discussion on a very important figure in this fight with trachoma that emerges, especially during the Mandate area and the British Mandate of Palestine, continues following the establishment of Israel. Uh, and that figure is the wandering physician, Rofad Hanadad. Is is that the, is that the correct way of saying it? Yes, <laughs> pretty close. <laughs> okay. All right. So we're going to look at the world of these wandering physicians who. Uh, found themselves in uh, various locales and in their pursuit of eliminating trachoma. Anat, I'm I'm familiar with wandering physicians in other contexts in the world during the late 19th and early 20th century. Why don't you tell us about the emergence of this figure, particularly within the geography you're working on? The figure of the Orfehan Oded uh, started specifically in uh, 1922 uh, with the start of the anti-trachoma campaign that was run by the Hadassal Medical Organization, which was the main Jewish health organization during uh, the mandate period. And the wandering physician in this case was specifically an eye doctor. It wasn't a a generalist. Um, And the role of this eye doctor was to go to every settlement uh, in the Yeshuv, every Jewish settlement, and treat children uh, with trachoma. And as part, as part of their trips, they were supposed to um, n- not only um, collect statistics about trachoma, as in who, who had it, uh, what stage of trachoma it was in, how many people were cured, but they were also supposed to engage in public health activities and public, um, ed- um, public education lectures for various communities, conduct surgeries in tough cases, and it was run by the Department of School Hygiene. And so the wandering doctor, as it emerges in the Israel-Palestine context, being a response specifically to, to trachoma seems fascinating to me. I'm not an expert on trachoma. I guess that's you. <laughs> but I, I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit about, you know, what trachoma is as a, as a disease at the beginning of the 20th century and and why is it so particularly important in the Israel-Palestine context, if it is particularly important? Maybe this was a global thing that I'm not aware of, but maybe you could elaborate on that further. Well, first I'll tell you what the disease is. Um, It's caused by the agent uh, chlamydia trachomitis, uh, which actually was not isolated until 1957, which is quite late considering um, uh, Robert Koch started isolating agents in the 1880s. Um, So that makes trachoma unique in the sense that They didn't exactly know what caused it, which uh, left the whole field open. Um, So at the turn of the century, it was considered a global disease, um, but particularly a disease of the Orient. Um, And it was most endemic in Egypt and Palestine. And you have a host of physicians and travel writers uh, going to these areas in this time period and repeating a trope that 
there's a hardly a normal eye <laughs> right. is that you only see, that you just see a host of blind people um and this was also true in palestine so um people knew that there was uh, a lot of eye disease there and actually you have uh, zionist physicians in europe who uh, decide to specialize in ophthalmology because they know trachoma is endemic in palestine and want to uh, contribute <laughs> to uh, the public good there. And it is considered a disease of poverty, um, and this was understood even in this time period, a disease of hygiene, um, and by the same token, a disease of culture, uh, specifically a disease of primitive culture and oriental culture. So I guess within your, so what you're saying is within the Zionist context, trachoma is kind of a symbolic meaning that's that goes beyond its uh, presence as a public health concern. Yes, I think it did have a particular cultural uh, salience because it was um, a disease of the Orient. And in Zionist ideology, which was partly a modernizing project, they didn't want Jews looking like Arabs, literally. <laughs> um, and also because it was considered an Eastern problem, wouldn't it be great if uh, Zionists were able to bring their Western expertise and know-how to solve this Eastern issue uh, to serve not only Jews in Palestine, but the whole Orient? If you go back to the practice of wandering um, physicians at the time, um, you said it start with the conference. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the practice itself? So the idea came... Um, to stop trachoma by sending wandering doctors. How did it function? What did it, what were they planning? So how, what the actual practice of the wandering physicians is what would happen is that they would uh, come up with a schedule of how many um, places <laughs> yeah, the, of, of where they were supposed to travel on what days, um, which you can imagine also had its uh, share of uh, complications. Um, reports show that they got from place to place uh, through horse, donkey, carriage, car, train. So they used various modes of transportation, um, and transportation was very difficult through through the rural areas. Um, and then when they would get to a place, um, they would uh, check children. They would uh, check children. Um, it was considered a disease of childhood. Um, and as I said, it was run through the Department of School Hygiene. And then they were collecting statistics. So statistics, um, trachoma, I think, was the first area where, um, where medical statistics were developed in Palestine. Um, and this itself was a complicated matter because uh, trachoma has various stages. And they had to notate which stage trachoma was at, whether it was in the infectious stage or whether it was already cured, it had already uh, wasn't infectious anymore. And because trachoma was often coupled with other infectious eye diseases, it was hard to tell exactly what was what. <laughs> um, and so you have cases where, um, you know, a doctor may diagnose someone with trachoma and then um, a doctor, another doctor may counter that opinion. And there was also not necessarily universal school attendance. So you also have reports of these physicians saying, uh, when I went, uh, there wasn't 
you know, they didn't realize I was coming on this day. So I ended up just going through the streets trying to check whoever I could. <laughs> so even though it came out, the campaign was supposed to be a very standardized practice. In many cases, it was ad hoc. All right. <laughs> so Anat, when we look at the, the figure of the wandering physician, it seems they're going out there into a you know, a, a wilderness, a medical wilderness, at least, in that there's not a familiarity with the kind of medical practices they're doing. And, and even you, you mentioned basic things like transportation and access are an issue. It's very reminiscent of perhaps my understanding of what medicine was like during the late Ottoman period in regions like Anatolia, of course, whether we're talking about state doctors or, or missionaries going out for medical practice. So, I mean, one of the questions I have is, did these physicians going out to do this very tough job and probably not a profitable job of, of being the wandering doctor, were they ideologically motivated? Like maybe in the case we would think of, of missionaries or were they part of a, you know, a semi-bureaucratic core of people selected to handle these diseases? How do they end up doing this probably uh, thankless uh, task of trying to diagnose trachoma and rural Palestine. It's unclear exactly how they were picked. Um, I didn't find that in my sources, but I definitely do think they were uh, ideologically motivated. Um, as Zionists, as a chance, um, in two ways. One, as part of this medical mission, um, in order to get rid of what was known as the scourge of the East. And, and it was often twinned with malaria as the two scourges of Palestine. And I think they perceived that it was a very doable goal of eradicating trachoma in Palestine. And so they, they could be a part of this. Um, secondly, it was also a pioneering activity because they were uh, traveling all of the whole yeshuv, and they were literally able to meet people from every settlement. It was the physician's way of being a pioneer when they weren't necessarily working the land, of being mm. an agricultural. <laughs> right. Um, and we see um, Dr. Ephraim Sinai, who worked as a uh, Rofano dead in the late 1920s, wrote in his memoir that when he would take the train uh, through the Jezreel Valley, um, he would feel like he was traveling through the heart of the Hebrew nation of, of Eretz Israel and not of Mandate Palestine. So this is remnant, this sh shows that he, his own traveling was a way of creating a national landscape and a national topography um, that was Zionist in nature. Well, I guess that leads us more towards a, a, a follow-up question of who they were treating. Was it specifically aimed at the Jewish settlers and the Jewish, or the, for example, the indigenous Jewish population of Palestine, or was it more broad to include Arab population, Christians, Muslims, etc.? During the mandate period, um, like many other sectors, social services were split between the Jewish and Arab population. Um, so the British mandate had its own Department of Health, which uh, treated Arabs, and they actually too had uh, mobile ophthalmic clinics. Uh, which operated, but not nearly to the extent um, that Jewish uh, anti-trachoma services worked. Um, so the Hadassah campaign was purely for the Jewish population. And 
there was actually discussions of the head of the campaign, Dr. Chaimiaski, um, in the 20s, wanted to expand the campaign to the Arabs, uh, not only um, for reasons of goodwill, but also because um, it threatens um, uh, Jewish infection if, you know, if Arabs have yeah, it and they work. <laughs> um but what was eventually decided was that we wouldn't turn anyone away, but we're not going to seek them out. <laughs> of course, this didn't really mm. happen in real life. And, you know, Arabs wanting uh, eye treatment could, you know, had to see uh, had to seek private care. But the campaign was aimed at every Jewish settlement, even though it, it wasn't a uh, burden that was equally uh, equally shared. Uh, amongst the population, um, the the rates of trachoma, which were were much higher in Yemenite communities, um, but there was um, trachoma also within uh, kibbutzim and moshavim where Ashkenazi uh, settlers lived. Uh, but when trachoma was found in these communities, it was often ascribed to the Arabs who worked in these in these settlements, and these were considered the source of trachoma. In later time periods, uh, when trachoma had decreased dra- uh, drastically in these communities, the Rofano dead would still visit them, but often in the name of good organization, just mm-hmm. so they can say they went everywhere, even though uh, it was often uh, found only in, in Yemenite communities. So there's, there's differentiation taking place here through the practice of treating trachoma using these wandering physicians and it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy of like the eternal uh backwardness or even uncleanliness of the arab spaces whether as you mentioned the higher higher rates among um uh yemeni jewish populations or higher rates among uh local muslim and christian populations who indeed are receiving less treatment it kind of, there's kind of a feedback loop there right there's this discourse of uh the, the, the dirty eyes of the East becomes like a reality through these practices. Yes, that's definitely the case uh, with the Arab population, that it's reinforced, um, especially at the end of the mandate, when they laud the success of this campaign. And it I should say that it was successful in the terms of numbers, that um, trachoma at the beginning of the mandate um, affected approximately 60% of the Jewish population. And by the end, it was about maybe 1.5%. <laughs> and that's by the, the end of the mandate period, by 1948. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even before. Uh, but what happens now is that it's 1.5% overall, but the percentages are higher if you look at uh, Middle Eastern Jewish communities. And this becomes um, the the place where the site where physicians must go uh, to treat. And so this becomes the problem, the Oriental community. So the Mizrahi also becomes the other, medically speaking. Medically speaking, yes. Um, but at the same time, they were very invested in treating them um, <laughs> in order to uh, erase, you know, to erase this otherness or at least differentiate them from the Arabs in this proto-national uh, time period, uh, at the same time, they also reinforce their difference. So if you go back to uh, wandering um, doctors in the um, time period that we're talking about, how were they received by the communities they were visiting um, as doctors? What can you tell us about that? 
maybe this now is also a good time to talk about sources a little bit, if to as in a way to answer your question. But I think as with all medical history, it's hard to get at uh, the patient's point of view, because um, most sources and um, for this project, I look at the correspondence and the reports of the Rafim Hanodadin themselves. On the other hand, there's ways to glimpse how they, how people thought of them. Um, sometimes uh, there, there's photographs of the campaign um, by Hadassah uh, photographers for Ameri- the American uh, publications. Um, and I think you get a sense of both anticipation, but also, the, I mean, the kids themselves, I don't think really liked it <laughs> because it was actually quite painful. Uh, the treatment was a mix of uh, topical ointments of copper sulfate or silver nitrate. And as you can imagine, to put this on your eye was really stung. So um, there's one very nice photograph of um, the doctor putting the ointment on a child's eye and you have a line of children behind the child kind of peeking out trying to see what's happening mm-hmm. <laughs> to the boy who's getting the treatment is like okay what's gonna is that gonna be me next and it was very arduous treatment where um while the wandering physician would come once every two to three months this daily application of ointment would be put on by uh, school nurses or sometimes even teachers um, depending on the settlement. Um, so it was a, it was a pretty painful, uh, process. And at the end of the mandate, once the medical services in Palestine had developed and the rates of trachoma had gone down dramatically, and it wasn't necessarily the public health priority that had been in the beginning, uh, you also have a sense that, um, this position is being, is out of date, um, that now we have local physicians in these rural communities and we don't necessarily need this doctor coming from out of town telling us what to do. Um, <laughs> so by the end of the mandate, it's not considered a, necessarily a respected or pioneering position that it, that it had been during the beginning. Well, Anat, I know that your research comes well into the national period in Israel. So we, we're, we're almost done with our episode here, but I want to ask a little bit about this transition from the mandate to post-48 period and the shift that takes place. And you, you mentioned that suddenly the wandering physician has a new position vis-a-vis uh, the broader population. Could you expand a little on, more on the meaning of that? Sure. Um, most The Rofano dead actually continues well into the 50s, which would be quite un- unexpected because... Um, most secondary sources claim that trachoma is basically eradicated by the time of statehood. Um, but two things happen in this period that would justify its, <laughs> its continued existence. Mm-hmm. One is that you have large immigration uh, to Israel from Middle Eastern countries uh, throughout North Africa, Iraq, Iran. And in these countries, trachoma is also endemic. Um, so you have this new source, this new fear, quote unquote, um, that needs to be taken un- under control. So just as anti-trachoma efforts are winding down within the state and less money is given towards this campaign, suddenly the rates skyrocket again. And in transit camps, um, 
antitrachoma activities become important. Um, and in the second instance, the new state has its own state health department, which is now responsible for the entire population of Israel and not just the Jewish sector. So while at the end of the mandate, uh, Hadassah was lauding its activities um, and claiming the success of its can in campaign in relationship to uh, what the mandate was doing and saying, look, our rates are slow, so low while the Arabs still have 40% rates of trachoma. Now Israel actually has to take care of, of, um, of Arabs and they're, they're considered citizens under, um, under their purview. And so the Rofeo Noded starts going to Arab villages and you see them bringing, um, doing the same type of ethnogra uh, ethnographic activity that they were doing in the mandate now also um, in Arab villages um, and uh, new eastern neighborhoods that are created in the 1950s. So we see this enduring role as the wandering physician, including in the national period, but in a different context, as a go-between between the you know, Zionist institutions in the cities and this countryside that needs to be joined to that body in some way. Uh, and, and so, I mean, in this regard, the, the doctors play a, a social function, right, that, that goes beyond their medical capacity in curing trachoma and whatnot. You mentioned the memoir of, of one of your pioneers, Ephraim Sinai. I'm wondering what kind of uh, social data comes out, what kind of social interactions emerge from his experience. I know we said that you couldn't get a lot about the impressions of, uh, of people of these doctors, but what kind of contact is going on there and what role is the wandering physician playing in that? Well, from Dr. Ephraim Sinai's uh, memoir, we can glean a lot about what it meant to be an eye doctor uh, during the mandate because he had a lot of different jobs and talks about all of them. <laughs> so we can see the differences and trajectories available um, to people. He comes to uh, Palestine from Germany where he did his training um, in 1924. Um, and as he steps off the boat in Jaffa, he goes uh, to visit one of his friends who's a, um, who's a doctor uh, near Gadara, and he stays in a moshav with him. And he goes there, he says, in, or in order to learn the ways of the Arabs. And <laughs> this obviously was very important, and he realized if he was going to make a living being a physician, he, under he had to understand... Um, this interaction, this relationship between Arabs and uh, Jewish doctors. Um, and, <laughs> and so he learns, you know, what, um, you know, from his point of view, um, you know, what, uh, what they expect to receive from a doctor, how much things cost or don't cost, how payments work. So he stays there for a few days and he decides to wander the various cities um, trying to look for a job. And he goes to Haifa and visits with uh, Dr. Nahum Shimkin and he goes to Jerusalem and visits uh, Dr. Uh, Albert Tijo, who is quite a famous ophthalmologist there. And they both decide that um, 
look, buddy, you know, we we have control of this area. We are the only doctor in town and we wanted to stay that way. We don't need uh, <laughs> competition from you. And so Sinai is left with no choice but to go to Gaza, uh, where he replaces uh, a generalist there. And he views this opportunity as a, as a Zionist one, as this is a way I can be a pioneer, a chalutz in my own right, is to work amongst the Arab population. Um, he stays there for two years, uh, and he brings his wife along with him. And he tries, he learns some Arabic, he makes some friends, uh, he, he tries to fit in in the ways that he can. Uh, unfortunately, um, he doesn't make a living, which is what he wanted to do. He realizes that uh, the Effendi of the area either go to Jerusalem for their treatment, they don't want the local guy, they want to go to the best of the best. And um, the Fellahin uh, don't usually go to the doctor <laughs> unless, unless it's too late. They don't do preventive care, and when they realize he doesn't cure blindness, then forget it. Uh, and le- this is the way he tells it, and so he ends up going to Jerusalem and becomes an assistant in Dr. Tijo's clinic uh, for two years and learns how the master uh, does his work and how he's able to attract all sorts of patients, Jews, Arabs, um, and realizing that a facility with various cultures is a real asset to creating a, uh, a viable private practice. Uh, he ends up leaving Dr. Tijo because of personality differences and gets this job as a Rofeano did, as this wandering physician. Uh, and so as I'm, as I'm getting closer to your question, um, he writes about this job, about going to, to, um, from, from settlement to settlement and about the people he meets. And he makes um, strong observations uh, about all of them, including um, Yemenites. He definitely devotes time to um, his ethnographic understanding of, um, of Yemenite people, of their religious practices, um, of, um, of their um, social, practice, social and cultural practices. He makes observations of... Um, Ashkenazi Chalutzim also, of <laughs> and various doctors that he meets, um, and how they're uh, faring out there in rural areas. Are they a pioneering sort of doctor who love being in agricultural area, or they uh, really feel like they're in the boonies and wish they were closer to the city where the hub of medical and scientific activity is taking place? Well, did the observations of these doctors make it back to the cities? Definitely. So, so my question is, you know, we mentioned the uh, analogy with missionaries and certainly we, we do a lot of episodes on medicine on the podcast and, and, these, and we've, we've talked about traveling doctors a little bit. But actually one of the parallels I see here relates to a podcast that Sechiel did a while back on uh, painters sent to Anatolia during a relatively early nationalist period in, Turkey's in, late ni- in Turkey in the late 1940s and some of their uh, observations, what they what they wrote about, what they saw, and how their art and their writing sometimes flew in the face of the national project. In other words, they were sending back images of Anatolia that clashed with the um, intentions of the very people who had sent them. Do we find a similar thing going on here? I mean, 
and 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 to add to, and to follow up on that what is the political position of these doctors what kind of people do they become in the national period i I don't think they those their views necessarily clash with the uh, with the perceived uh, ideas about about Yemenites, but instead reinforce and um, are considered authoritative. And I think doctors, because they have unique access to people, um, and because specifically these doctors are going everywhere, they're they're. Th- it's their job is not necessarily only medical, but also ethnographic, and um, and that's considered important, and that um, actually falls by the wayside once you get to the late fifties, where numbers replace everything. No longer have you the colorful narrative of the physician, but I, this is a global trend mm-hmm. where science becomes more. Uh, numbers based and uh, numbers can explain everything and and the value of um, the first-hand account becomes irrelevant and these eye doctors actually become very important uh, dr. Chaim Yasky who was uh, one of the first uh, Rofim Anodadim actually becomes the director of the Hadassah medical organization as a whole Dr. Ephraim Sinai becomes the head of ophthalmology at Ichilov Hospital in Tel Aviv. Um, you have um, uh, Dr. Bella Mirenberg. Uh, there is also a woman, uh, a wandering physician, and she becomes, um, she's employed by the Hadassah University Hospital in Jerusalem and ends up doing research um, and publishes research in the 50s. Uh, about trachoma. Um, so all these prophylactic activities that are done in the mandate period turn into um, research interests, as again, in the early 50s, the trachoma agent is still is, still hasn't been found. Um, so this more public health orientation gets turned into a laboratory scientific story. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting story. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of uh, your ongoing, and I know you're writing your dissertation right now, so I'm looking forward to seeing the product there. Thank you. <laughs> um, and it, it goes well alongside, uh, I know, some of the other historiography on medicine and disease in Israel, such as uh, Sarah Sufyan's book about malaria, which also, you mentioned malaria a little bit, malaria, um, ridding the landscape of malaria was part and parcel to some sort of Zionist project about changing the nature of the land that, that, that was being settled. So again, Anat, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Sharing your insights about yet another region. We've talked about medicine in Ottoman Lebanon. We've talked about medicine in Anatolia. We're going to talk about medicine in other places. And I do want to mention our ongoing series curated by Nir Shafir on the history of science, within which this uh, episode will also find its place. And to, and to find more episodes on the topic of medicine and disease and science in the Ottoman Empire and the broader Middle East, please visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. We also find a space to leave your comments and questions and access the bibliography that Anats provide us, provided us to go along with this episode. Also check out our Facebook group where you can keep up with our posts from the podcast as well as content from our other sites, our partner sites in MENA Lab. That's www.middleeastnorthafrica.com for the MENA Lab site. 
Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. That's all for this episode of the Adam History Podcast. Until our next episode, take care.